Hi again, this is Nutshell, your weekly summary of the interviews we feature on Biz News. For months, analysts with the biggest business lobby, Business Unit South Africa, backing them up, have been saying that the ANC government needs to prescribe its own medicine for South Africa's troubled economy. Because if it doesn't, someone else will. The spectre of the IMF was looming large despite assurances from them and the South African Reserve Bank that it won't be necessary. And this week it came to light that the government is starting to shift into gear to address the ailing economy. The National Treasury has asked departments to prepare proposals on how to reduce expenditure in a way that has the least impact on service delivery. It is seeking cuts of 5% for the coming financial year, rising to 6% and 7% for the next two years. It is hoping to save 300 billion rand over three years with the cuts. The other glimmer of light was a statement by Minister Gwede Montache that the labor unions opposing the plans to split ESCOM into three units will ultimately have to support the reforms. For a view from London, Buzz News spoke to Nick Smith-Savile from DebtWire about ESCOM's financial statements and whether there are any signs in the statements that the power utility is turning the corner. In short, no. I think the, the numbers were were pretty pretty bad, significant decreases in profitability uh, between last year and this year. However, I think that was expected given the severe challenges that Eskom faced last year um, and the, the time it will take to turn around this business. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a little, little too early to be expecting you know, improvements in reported numbers. I think you've got to look under the hood to find uh, find an answer as to, as to whether these, uh, this business is starting to improve. Uh, just explain to people who don't understand the uh, debt markets what that means. So all, all bonds are quoted as a percentage of their face value. So if I lend $1,000 to ESCOM, uh, the value of that is quoted as percentages of that face value. So 100 is that $1,000 loan is worth $1,000. 90, it would be worth 900. 110, it'd be worth 1,100. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, it looks like those who are investing their money are confident they will get it back. Yes, the, the, these are the guaranteed bonds. So they are guaranteed by the South African government. Right. Okay. Getting more into the uh, the results themselves, the chief financial officer Kalib Kassim has said that Eskom A needs to cut its debt by half, and B that government or somebody needs to take that away. If Eskom had 225 billion rands worth of debt, in other words, half of what it has at the moment, would it then be sustainable? My gut feel is no. Even if you took away half the debt, the business would still be nearly eight times levered. So it would have eight times its annual profits based on the last year's profits to, to its debt. Um, that is substantially above where other power generating and transmission companies are, are levered. Uh, so it would, it would still have substantially more debt than other peers. Coupled with that, you then have the significant investment needs that are that are there at ESCOM. You know, it has to refurbish its fleet. It has to invest in a new generation of capacity utilization and execute on, on the resource plan to ensure that its its generating capacity is therefore sustainable for South Africa into you know the middle of this uh, this century and, and, and beyond. So I think 
without truly understanding the, the unbundling, which is perhaps another topic we'll come on to, it's very difficult to say whether that, uh, that level of debt will be sustainable. I think you have to understand the financial engineering and exactly where that debt is going to be placed in order to understand what the sustainable level of, of debt for this business truly is. What about that unbundling? Because that's been portrayed as the rescue of Eskom, but we haven't heard much in the past few months about how that's going to be implemented. No, and it's really something that was announced and, and continues to be talked about, but without real detail. And so the chief restructuring officer has been recently appointed. Uh, it is his job to to kind of fulfill and follow through on that. And that there is the, the ESCOM paper, in inverted commas, which should be released in the coming weeks, which should start to detail uh, that uh, program. Uh, one of the things that is noted in the annual report is that the the board is starting to work on the the separation of the business units to allow full legal separation. But one of the things they're very clear on, even at this kind of early stage, is that this is going to be a multi-year process to allow full separation of, of all those business units. Within South Africa, uh, from a practical perspective, we haven't seen any load shedding for some months now. That, I think, is making the man in the street feel a little bit more comfortable about Eskom, but should we be? With the plans that are being undertaken, the actions that are being undertaken, there is a, a clear and concerted effort to improve, improve that situation. Would you buy the bonds now, Eskom bonds? Uh, a question I'm, I'm not necessarily regulated to answer, but one of the things that we've, we've discussed at, at length is how investors should be thinking about particularly the guaranteed bonds and how they relate, therefore, to, to the South African sovereign. And the South African sovereign trades tighter than the, the ESCOM guaranteed bonds, and we think substantially that the risk of those two is, is the same, given the right of recourse that the, the investor has. You've mentioned guaranteed bonds. Are there, uh, is there a big difference between the pricing of a guaranteed bond and a non-guaranteed bond from Eskom? Yeah, in terms of yield to maturity, so how much uh, you would earn if you held the bonds to its maturity. If we look at the, the dollar bonds issued last year, uh, both maturing in 2028, there's about a 1.7% difference in that yield. What would I be receiving if I bought a guaranteed Eskom bond today or government guaranteed Eskom bond? and then a non-guaranteed? So the, the guaranteed bonds, uh, the US dollar bonds are 5.25%, and the non-guaranteed bonds are 6.92%. Wow, that's a big difference uh, when you put it that way around. Nick, just yeah. look, looking at Eskom, generally speaking, as an as a analyst based in London, are you feeling uh, confident that the policymakers in South Africa are getting their hands around the problem? I think it's taken longer than perhaps we would have liked. We would have liked, as ever investors would, more, more details sooner. However, I think there are clear steps that are being taken to, to try and address the, the sustainability of this business. And I think that, that has to be a positive compared to where we were sat 12 to 18 months ago. Official unemployment figures in South Africa point to 29% of adults being without jobs. This figure is disputed by G.G. Alcock, who has done research on the informal sector. He says this number is closer to 12% to the outrage of some of our business community. Alcock says the formal economy is not the only economy. 
there's an entire economy out there that that is invisible in essence to to formal economists in the formal sector, which um, and and the general assumption is that um, this informal sector is about subsistence and survivalist businesses, which is absolute rubbish. I mean, just the food business, what I call gassy courses, with 87 billion rand a year, 50,000 outlets. Outlets can earn from 50,000 rand a day. Um, you know, upwards. Uh, there's hawkers in downtown Joburg who are selling three to six thousand fed cook for one rand each every single day, six days a week. So, uh, and that's the food sector and, and so on and so on. So, there's this huge number of, of very successful businesses. Many of them have been there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. There's no way they're subsistence or survivalists. They're actually a strong and successful business in their own right. Um, there's billions of rand in turnover. You know, the school mamas who are selling snacks to school children and in township schools, the average mama can earn between three and a half and six thousand rand a month profit, which is more than the um you know, than the minimum wage for domestic servants. And I mean I've profiled these guys in, in my book as as gastronomic revolutionaries who um and, and, and so we have this multitude of these small businesses, but they're not recognized and they're misunderstood and they're misrepresented in terms of the assumption is that the minute there's a job appeared um, somewhere else, they would leave their job and they would uh, and they would take a formal job, which again is, is completely untrue. So if you ask these people, if they don't have a payslip, people in South Africa will say to you they're unemployed. Whether they're earning an income from some sort of thing like rental, um, uh, or, or they, they don't have a formal job, they will say, I'm not employed, I work. You know, and I quoted that in my article. People say, you know, which basically means I don't have a job, but I work. Why is it that uh, the, the bulk of people who live in the first world just don't get this? Because if you look at the comments under the article and the, the comments that, that were on Facebook pages, etc., uh, it, it, it comes from a uh, I dare I say arrogance of ignorance? If you were in, in Lagos, you know, there's 20 million people in Lagos and uh, only 3 to 4% of the economy is formal. In Lagos, you would talk about the main economy being the informal economy. In South Africa, we play around with the formal economy as the only economy. We have no concept of the rest of the economy. Uh, and very few businesses have actually got it right in terms of getting involved in, in that economy. Even if you just look, I mean, one of the things I believe will transform our economy in terms of, of the issues which we currently have is allowing credit to um, what I kind of call we're venture lenders, you know, getting credit to lend to small businesses so these businesses can grow um, and employ more staff and et cetera, et cetera, all the things that these small businesses do. But there's not a single bank in the country that will lend money to a small business. There's not a single bank that will lend money to a township household to build back rooms. Now, the backroom rental industry is worth about – uh, just on the, the residential side, about 30 billion rand a year in, in rentals, um, in rental income. I mean, that's 30 billion rand that's coming into people's pockets. Many of those people would be claimed as, as unemployed. And, uh, and if that was true, that they were unemployed and had no form of income as per the numbers, then actually there'd be a hell of a lot more people with the serious malnutrition in the country. We'd need uh, Bob Geldof to come along and get some bread loaves and hand them out. And, and that's not the reality of, of these environments. 
It's a very interesting point that you've made there that the banks won't lend to these people who do have viable businesses, perhaps on a micro level. But we've just seen being written into law in the new Credit Act a write-off, which the banks are going to have to take, of about 20 billion rand to people earning less than 7,500 rand per month. Again, probably formally formally employed people uh, who've got 50,000 rand's worth of debt. Now, by forcing the banks to write off this 20 billion, it sounds to me like you're going to give them a great disincentive to even look at uh, this market as an opportunity. Kind of ended my book, Dynamic Revolution, about so what and where to now is that we have to change regulations on a number of levels to adapt to this economy. So equally, many of the micro lenders, I spoke at the micro lender, uh, microfinance um, uh, conference last week, and and uh, you know they they cannot use, for instance, someone who who has. Um, Three back rooms who's renting them out for say uh, you know five or six or seven or ten thousand rand a month they can't use that rental agreement to say that that person has an income so you know regulations have been built around formal formal stuff I mean even if you had an Airbnb and you were earning say fifty to a hundred thousand rand a month banks uh, don't really look at you so. You know, um, you know, one of my things is that first regulations have to adapt to a for, um, to an informal economy. Uh, both municipal bylaws, government laws, financial institutions, um, and and the the you know just just from a, a security of tenure perspective, you know, we need to allow um, small businesses to some have some sort of security. Apart from anything, municipalities could earn money, government could tax this sector, but all of it needs first of all. Uh, recognition that these are businesses and that there is this business sector. Um, you know, the Minister of Small Business, not the current one, the previous one, said we need more entrepreneurs in the townships. I'm like, there are hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs in the township. You have to recognize them as such, number one. And number two, you have to support these uh, local entrepreneurs through through a, a range of different forms of support. Um, and, then, and they're not formal sector type support or regulations. It was a week that saw the Steinoff share price sink to 87 cents on the JSE. And although Steinoff managed to strike a deal with creditors, the realization has sunk in that litigation, with Christo Visa standing right in front of the queue, would probably mean that shareholders won't get anything back. David Shapiro, who is Alec Hogg's wingman on Rational Radio, added this Warren Buffett warning about investing in companies in trouble. You see a cockroach in the kitchen, uh, sooner or later you're going to meet the family. And <laughs> I love that one. You know, and, and I say that because when problems hit, just be careful. It's best then to sell out there and wait until it settles. You can always come back once the problem is sorted. And uh, where the share price also points towards, share price performance also points towards issues. We saw it in Tongart. We saw it in, we're seeing it in Aspen to an extent now as well. I mean, to a large extent. Now, Aspen is down over almost 30% in the last month as well. And there's no turnaround. No one's coming in to save the company. Funny enough, Sassel is picking up a little bit now. Sassel's in a better position than it was last week, meaning that maybe the results, maybe the market overreacted to these, uh, to the numbers. So, Alec, it's a warning. You know what? You don't, you don't have to be the savior. Don't look for, don't catch falling knives. 
Well, if you have been following the Busasa revelations at the Zondo Commission, you would know that the Gupta brothers are not the only suspects in the corruption of the state in the Zuma years. The story of the Watsons and the whistleblower Angelo Agrizzi is told in the fourth book by James Steyan, titled The Busasa Billions. So, does Steyan think Gavin Watson, who has been as quiet as Marcus Justin Hermanus, is guilty of the corruption? that Agritzi is accusing him of? Look, I don't think we, we must be under any illusions. Uh, my view is that uh, there's a lot that both of them have to answer for. Um, whatever their, their motives might be, at the end of the day, that will be for a judge to finally decide. We, uh, you know, we lay it out in the book what the motives are said to be, for Mr. Agritzi in particular. But uh, you know, I don't think we can be under any illusion that he's been living off the proceeds of crime for a long time as well. Uh, I haven't seen him publicly go back and give back any of the you know the various things he might have uh, might own big houses ferraris you you name it um but so so certainly motives will be questioned and investigated i'm sure by a court um and as for mr watson you know i i think we lay it out in the book using various evidence that that he he he, he built a carefully orchestrated um network um of operations that 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 kept that kept him his fingerprints off the trigger, so to say. But um, I think that that you know the, there's certainly enough evidence that that he that he will have to answer for eventually. Hmm. Was he that smart then? That he he knew that at some point in time it would implode. So make sure you don't sign any documentation. Or was he maybe maybe that incompetent? I wouldn't think he's incompetent. I think if you go back to the 80s and, and earlier, and you look at, at various other rumors and stories as well, which we looked into a little bit, um, there's a lot of question marks around the way they've been doing business all along, the way that this family's been operating all along. Um, you look at some of the – we didn't even go into the businesses that the other brothers have been busy with over the past decade or so as well. So I, I definitely don't think it's incompetence. You don't do a 12 billion rand business where you're the CEO um, of a business like that by being incompetent either. So I think that there's a lot to be answered for. Um, and the fact that, you know, there's no X marks a spot at the moment doesn't absolve him from, from any wrongdoing at this moment. Have you met the guys? Have you met Watson or the two key characters and Degreasy? I I tried desperately getting uh, a meeting with uh, Gavin Watson, but uh, they weren't available uh, to comment. I did speak to several people very close to him, uh, mostly off the record, but certainly deep background and corroborating information. And I think you'll find one chapter does lay out the other side of the story quite clearly. Um, and then, of course, I, with Mr. Agritzi, I did meet with him, and we had several interviews, uh, which provide his side of the story as well. What's he like in real life? We've seen him on television, larger than life, kind of keeping South Africa riveted by watching his uh, his testimony at the Zondo Commission. Yeah. Fascinating, um, fascinating, very affable, um, larger than life is a very good description, walks in, no bodyguard anywhere, kind of devil may care, doesn't, you know. No fear, um, you know, um, and and but watching the reaction of other people around was interesting. Um, the doorman at the one particular restaurant would open the door and 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 nod to him and say, 
tell him, for example, in front of me, thank you very much for what you've been doing. And these are just normal run-of-the-mill South Africans. So he certainly got a big following out there. People, A lot of people thinking he's done a, a remarkable thing here. Mm. Did you come to any conclusions, though, that he had this, this Damascene experience where he went to the other side and then came back to, to tell his story? Is, is that genuine? <laughs> Look, uh, my, uh, I think that there's an element of that, but I think that there's an, a large element of self-preservation as well at play. Um, I think that, uh, that, that, that we've seen a big change uh, in national government leadership. We've seen a, a big move towards uh, clearing the, everything out of the state of corruption. We've seen changes at the MPA, very good changes, although they're certainly taking their time. Um, and I think that you know, the, the, the noose was tightening maybe to an extent. So so I think that there's an element of self-preservation at play as well. So you want to be the first to jump out. And yes, you've got this wonderful commission where they've got these wonderful rules that whatever you say can't incriminate you, for example. Um, and you can go and you can say a whole bunch of things and name a whole bunch of people. And he's been very carefully building up a lot of evidence. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of real stuff that, that, that corroborates a lot of what he's been saying. So, yeah, I, you know, I think it's somewhere in the middle between those two. And what about the, the comparisons with Marcus Yuster, who's taken the other, he's taken a Stonewall Jackson kind of approach, uh, and clearly you've, invested, <laughs> you've researched him pretty well. I would, I would compare the two CEOs with, with one another. Uh, Gavin Watson and 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 uh, and, and Marcus Hewitt, and very very certainly those comparisons are very close. Neither of them are really giving anything away. They're both, you know, hiding behind lawyers, not seeing in public. Um, so so those two are that that's very interesting to me as a as a better comparison. It was a week when global venture capitalist Jerry Colonna told managers to take a toll ball or to reboot, as his book is titled and focus less on output and achievement. Colonna wants managers to create environments where workers and businesses can thrive. Alec Hogg interviewed WBHO's outgoing chair Mike Wiley on how he chooses managers. He believes in the principle of growing your own timber. So I got really um, hooked on management continuity. In other words, there should be no reason why you ever employ somebody from outside. And, uh, you know, because it's our jobs all the time uh, to be creating career paths. First of all, employing the right people and then creating career paths for them so that when when the people retire or there's opportunities or people leave, you can easily fill those positions with people with the same culture, with with the same experience, the same understanding, all the WBHO systems. And it just becomes – and that really worked for us, you know. So, And even to this day, as you can see from the latest changes, it's all from within. So when I've heard companies searching internationally, and searching outside, you know, the boards are searching for this and searching for that. I just shake my head, you know, and, and say to myself, well, what's wrong with them? The people are there in the company. They should be there in the company. But how do you bring through, particularly in the, uh, with the challenges that South Africa has with black economic empowerment, etc., how do you bring through people? How do you make sure that you've, A, recruit the right people, and B, that they stay the right people uh, when they get a few bucks in their pocket? Um, look, I think um, especially these days in, um, 
we are um, we're sort of vulnerable because people, you know, good guys join us, stay with us for three or four years, and become very marketable. So um, we do we do lose a lot of people. But I think once once people are with us for five, ten years, then they realise, you know, the grass on the other side is not greener. We don't necessarily pay any better, or sometimes I think in fact our salaries are, are normally a bit lower than the rest. Um, we do, but we're very bonus orientated. So yeah, so we you know we just employ um, people that um, are sort of humble but smart. I think if I can put two words, we just want guys that and and obviously people that just love the outdoors and and love getting their hands dirty and getting excitement about building something and. Um, you know, being creative. So I think it's, um, yeah, so we, and that's a certain type of person. We certainly like BSC civil engineers. And, you know, we, we like those guys because they have the maths behind them. The maths is so important and that overall intelligence. And, um, on the, on the, um, admin side, we've obviously got a lot of CAs and then sort of everything flows from that. And it's, it's that sort of, um, humility and strength that we look for. And, you know, it, it's, it comes, a lot of people have it and a lot of happy people have it. So, and that creates, you know, all the sort of dimensions of quality that we need and that we know will be sustainable. And that's almost become a habit now, you know. And um, so I think, yeah, I think that's really it. But when you are considering uh, whether to promote someone from a, a relatively young age, what do you look for? What qualities or what values do you look for in those people? Um, you know, um, I, I learned these from a management consultant friend of mine, and uh, I think it also that it comes from <clears throat> all those um, American guys, um, the management consultants. And it's, you know, I've got I've got it down to um, five five uh, um, adjectives, I suppose you would call them. We want we want uh, people, and we can measure. You know, when I look at our team that we've got now, that you know, as I walk away, there's been a lot of movement. It's not just Loki taking over from me or Wolfgang taking over to CEO. There's a whole lot of movement down, which creates excitement. And and I look back and I see every single one of these guys has has every one of these attributes. And that's reliability, um, responsiveness, credibility, empathy, and attractiveness. So, you know, if a guy's got that with an umbrella over that of intelligence, um, you've got a winning formula. And, um, you know, it, it actually makes me laugh because when we when if if we, if we went outside to get a new CEO, we would get uh, about 20 CVs and we would interview people and each of those guys would be saying how great they are and how they're the right men for the job and really promoting themselves. When we approached our guys, you know, to take over these senior positions, the first reaction is always, oh, sure, I don't think I can do that job, you know. You know, are you sure? Are you sure I'm the right person? And that's the people we want. A comment on the rusty state of the massive oceans development in Umschlanga brought the wrath of billionaire developer Vivian Reddy on critics. Reddy said the 3.4 billion oceans development is going to be bigger than the Mall of Africa. And there's a new surprise element that no other shopping mall in South Africa has. During peak construction, it's going to employ 15,000 people. And when it's complete, it's going to have 2,500 job opportunities. This project is bigger than the Mall of Africa. If you look, it's the biggest development, 240,000 square meters of development is massive. It's big, it's major, and it's going to change the landscape of Mflanga. It's going to increase property values because we're bringing this unique building, a beautiful, and by the way, this design, designed by LYT architects, amazing guys, won the African award as the best mixed-use development in Africa, and it came 
third in the world at the World Design. Okay, so so it's it's a great project. It's a big project. It's an expensive one, but it stopped, and I think that's yeah. what got tongues wagging. Absolutely, and as I said, it was most unfortunate. It was beyond our control when contractors go into liquidation, and it's very important. Also, the financial institutions got to protect their interests, and we don't blame them. And uh, but what is good now? Things are going back on track. Uh, we've informed all the relevant stakeholders, and we've had great support. The malls, 85% let, big national tenants, seven international brands. There's going to be another diamond walk that we're creating, and that's going to be What's another diamond walk. Uh, diamond walk is where in Santon City you've got diamond walk, you've got all the big stores there, high Burberry, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, you know, all these high-end uh, brands and uh, uh, Versace and those other stuff. So we want to create that kind of premise uh, walk in Durban because Durban has a great disposable income and we are very excited. I mean, I had meetings with uh, MDs of these international retailers and it was amazing the amount of money the people in Durban spend uh, at uh, these high-end stores. There's a big demand. It's a very small market. It's not a big market, but you know, when you walk into one of these big international brands and you buy one handbag, it's twenty to thirty thousand rands, and uh, you know, you can close your doors after that. You've made enough profit for the day. But we are very excited. We are actually going to bring ex a great store, and we also are going to have another fest, which I cannot mention, but it's the first type of entertainment, children entertainment ever in South Africa. You're very bullish on South Africa. I'm positive. Look, we got a great president in Sir Ramaphosa and he is someone that I believe is going to take out, out of this recession and I hope people give him more of a chance. I think there have been too high expectations. You know, the country has been in decay for a while. And we must look around the world what's happening. And we must look at what other countries, you know, uh, like uh, take, um, you know, some of these European countries and, and what has happened uh, to, uh, out there, Portugal. You know, they've been worse in South Africa and they picked it up. And I believe that this country has got more positive than negatives. We've got to start being more patriotic. And that was Nutshell. The full interviews are available on the Biz News website. Until next week.